Josem and I am a physician and musician based in Toronto. Risk was one of the first podcasts I ever started listening to just over 10 years ago when I was freshly done with college and struggling to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was applying to medical school and was also trying to figure out whether I wanted to pursue music full time. I was working an office job doing tedious administrative work and listening to this podcast really took me through that year of my life. Listening to some of the stories was so inspirational and made me feel not so alone in this juncture of my life. I was also struggling with my sexuality and having such an unapologetically queer podcast was something that was so welcome for me. At that time, I started working on my music and actually wrote an interstitial inspired by the podcast that was an ode to taking risks and pursuing my dreams, but I chickened out in sending it until many years later. Fast forward 10 years, and I did both music and medicine. I'm a practicing physician working in HIV medicine, and I just released my debut album titled It Came to Me in a Dream. I still listen to the podcast religiously and even included a studio version of the interstitial titled The Risk in this album. Wishing you all another successful 600 episodes and more. I'll still be here listening. Hey folks, this is Kevin. That beautiful song and beautiful testimonial came from Josem because on this week's episode of Risk, you'll be hearing from you. I love Risk because you're able to share your most intimate stories and have it be celebrated by a huge group of strangers that you're scared of. And instead of those strangers judging you, they're applauding. I normally tell people, if you really want to get to know me, you need to listen to Risk. Like that right there from Darlene Muniz. That and so much more. But first, if you or anyone you know might like to be on the show in another way <laughs> by sharing a story, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. We have short video tutorials and tips on how to pitch a story and how to start putting one together. You can check it all out at risk-show.com slash submissions. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bob James behind me now. And you might have noticed that the Risk theme song sounded different this week. In fact, it was a mashup of covers of the Risk theme song by members of our audio team, the folks who edit the stories, work up the sound design, sometimes compose the sound design. But here's the thing. We'd like to keep changing things up with that Risk theme song. If you are a musician, a composer, a singer, an instrumentalist, a member of a barbershop quartet, or a percussion ensemble. Maybe you work with synthesizers or sound collage. Whatever kind of music you make, you could do a cover of the Risk theme song. Pick a genre, whatever kind of instruments you want to use, and we'd love to put that on a future episode. Be sure to email me for more information. I will point you to our page on the Risk website that has all you need to know at risk-show.com slash music. And as always, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. So what is the special occasion this week? This is our 600th episode of Risk. I'll tell you, never in a million years could we have known just how much of a journey making this show would be so many moments we've shared with you guys eureka moments moments of breaking down in tears moments of celebration moments of 
real challenges and fears. And we've met so many extraordinary people along the way. The show has changed our lives behind the scenes in so many ways. And we owe so much of it to you, the folks who became the extended risk family, our storytellers and our fans. Here's two examples right now. This is Wanda Wilson Bowser, who's told a couple remarkable stories on the show, and so has Ernest Anfin. I discovered Risk by listening to Two Dope Queens. Kevin was actually a guest on the show, and he told a story. So the first story that I ever heard was Kevin talking about how uh, he met a gentleman, and the story ended with him having boots tied to his ball sack <laughs> and after listening to that I, I thought I gotta hear more of this guy what's going on <laughs> and I have been a dedicated risk listener ever since 2016 I love the show it's definitely made me a more open-minded empathetic person you all are doing amazing work and here's to 600 plus more episodes I love all the stories Thank you so much for everything you do. Risk means so much to me because risk stories are stories that mainstream society just doesn't want to hear. But they are stories that must be told if we're going to be honest with ourselves, both as individuals and as a society. Risk stories portray the world as it is, not as how it wants to be. That kind of honesty is so important in the unending battle against hypocrisy. One of the things that's so sweet about the show is that we'll sometimes get to know not just the storyteller, but then we'll get to know that storyteller's family members and sometimes that storyteller's friends. And there have even been multiple cases of people who met the person they got married to through the Risk community. You know, I think it would be fun to have some episodes soon that are hosted not by me, but by some of the other voices that you know and love from the podcast, from having heard their stories. And speaking of voices you know and love, our first story on the episode today comes from the amazing Sean Patton. Sean's story, Whiteout, is on the best of risk number 10, and his story, 500, is on the best of risk number three. You can find him at meshawnpatton.com, and here he is now at a recent risk live show in New York City with a story we call Scuttlebutt. Thank you. Things you should know about me. I'm from the metropolitan area of New Orleans, Louisiana, right? My parents are both from the Lower Ninth, which is a very, it's very popular for all the wrong reasons, you know, mainly for, you know, the flooding and all. But being from New Orleans is interesting because people have a reaction to it. No one's ever just like, oh, like I've had people, I've said, oh, I'm from New Orleans, and they react like, well, like I've had people go to show me their breasts. Basically, I'm like, we're at a bank. If you want to do that, do it, you know. But it's a very cool, awesome city. 
known for its culture, known for its food, known for its debauchery, known for its inability to evacuate its citizens on time in the face of a Category 4.5 storm, but also known for its resiliency. I mean, I was there for the whole thing, and the Bush administration was basically like, oh, they want help? Did they vote for us? Well, we'll see about that, and said, fuck it, and rebuilt, and now remains one of the few cultural meccas left in the United States. You know, it's the last European city we got. It's an awesome place. I grew up in Chalmette, Louisiana, which, just to put it in a New York context, because that's where we are now, Chalmette's like the Staten Island. You get it, right? By the time I got to high school, they moved us to Slidell, Louisiana, which is sort of like, I would say, like the Yonkers of New Orleans, right? Just now you get it. Now you, you got the map. So how many of you, by round of applause, have never had your heart broken by another human being? Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. This means we are all actual human beings. I know that's judgmental of me, but I feel like having your heart broken is like, ah, your training wheels are off. You're a real person now, right? And like, I've asked that question before, and there are people who clap fucking proudly, and I'm like, wow, oh, it's coming. I hate to be the one. Like, I've met people before who like, are like, nope, never had my heart broken. We've been together for 12 years. Met when we were 16. I'm like, good Christ, we're all going to read about that one. <laughs> Having your heart broken is part of life. And it happened to me for the first time when I was 20 years old, right? I wouldn't call her my high school sweetheart, but it was someone I had been infatuated with since around then. And she broke it off with me, citing this reason, I was too emotional. Too emotional. You don't, don't say that to a Scorpio, because it's not true. You understand? I'm a master of my own emotion. Every Scorpio knows this. We hold dominion over the other 11 signs, okay? We rule from the crotch, okay? We didn't ask for this. We didn't ask for this goddamn sexiness. Like, it's, I gained weight for your protection. You understand? I got tired of sexually enslaving everyone I met. So I got fat so that you have an out. So that when I lock my baby blues on you, you can then say, I'm not into fatties, and I'll mercifully look away, all right? But back then, I didn't realize the power I wielded. She said I was too emotional, and it hurt. It hurt. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks just in the doldrums, and it got to the point where my friends didn't want to be around me. I was a lot. So basically, I decided the best way to get over her and move on with life was to see some titties, right? to go to a strip club for the first time. Now, New Orleans, it's famous for strip clubs. I mean, Bourbon Street alone's got, you know, three or four. It's got eight. I think it's actually 12 at last count, you know? And there's also, I mean, not so much anymore, but there used to be back then off-bourbon strip clubs, which are a lot like off-Broadway theaters if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it's going to be a little cheaper to get in, but you're going to be slightly confused by what you're watching on the stage. <laughs> and there will be a smoke machine just pumping for no reason. And in the quarter, you know, there's Dixieland Divas and uh, Rick's Cabaret and Larry Flint's Hustler Club and Barely Legal and Stilettos and, you know, Chris Owen. Like, there's all these famous strip clubs. I didn't go to any of those. I didn't even go to the French Quarter. I 
33 miles north of the city in the suburb I grew up in, Slidell, Louisiana. There's a strip club there called Scuttlebutt. <laughs> exactly. Scuttlebutt. Now, I saw that place dozens of times in my teenage years. I thought it was just the worst named strip club possible, right? Like the owner was just some meathead who had no grasp of the English language and was like, let's see, I want him to scuttle in to see some butt. There it is. Names itself. Scuttlebutt. Put it on the fucking side. But I would learn later in life, scuttlebutt is an actual word with an actual definition. The definition of which is gossip or a rumor. So now I have an entirely different image of the proprietor of scuttlebutt. It's a dude with a top hat and a monocle. Pardon me, gentlemen and scholars alike. Behind these doors be scantily clad women of the night willing to polish the knob on your front side for mere pennies on the dollar. Or so that be the scuttlebutt. <laughs> now, I was 20 years old at the time. Technically, that is too young to get into a strip club. Fortunately for me in Southeast Louisiana, the concept of too young to get into a bar doesn't exist, right? I don't think bouncers actually look at your ID and the age on it or the year you were born. I think they kind of look at the confidence in which you hand it to them, right? But I was so heartbroken, I must have had the energy of like a, like a goddamn Gulf War vet. Because the guy didn't even look at me twice, but I swear I heard him go, thank you for your service. <laughs> I got in there, it was my first time ever in a strip club. I walked up to the bar, I ordered a PBR off the imported beer list. <laughs> imported from Milwaukee, motherfucker. And I sat at the stage and just sort of listened because I was too heartbroken to look. That's how sad it was. You know, where just any semblance of the female form reminded me of, like, oh, God, she had a stomach too, man. I can't, I can't do it. So I just sat there and flicked dollar bills at every stripper. And I was 20. I was broke. So, like, every third flick, there'd just be nothing there. And I just did the motion, right? My morale was low. Theirs didn't have to be as well, right? And if you've ever been to a stripper, you know, you know that the DJ's got this voice. This is how he talks. And he's just... All right, fellas, show your love for Crystal. Okay, here she comes, boys. Club favorite, it's Cacophony. All right, fellas, here comes your headliner for the night, Nancy. Nancy. Exactly. That caught my ear. Nancy. That's like a real name. But why would a stripper use the name Nancy? Usually, maybe her real name's already too strippery. You know, maybe her real name's like Seaman, right? And spelled C-I-E-M-Y-N-N, of course, Gaelic name. And I looked up, and it was like, we met eyes immediately, Nancy and I, and there was clearly a connection. It was obvious. Like, I was worried that other people were feeling it. Like, it was just a moment, right? And she comes out, and she starts dancing. And unlike every stripper before her who came out dancing to, like, Ja Rule or Megadeth, or Metallica, or Limp Biscuit, or, you know, DMX. Nancy came out dancing to Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> right. 
Now, this is a song everyone knows and everyone has convinced themselves they hate. But if you can honestly look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that just once, just once in your life, that song, when played out of absolutely nowhere, didn't get you, huh. <laughs> Her and I make eye contact again, and it was powerful, man. You know what I mean? Where you could just feel it. Like, she could see right through me. Obviously, I was a broken boy. That's why I was in a strip club. But I could see right through her as well. She was also broken. That's why she was stripping. How dare you, Sean? Are you implying that all strippers are broken? Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> fucking am. I believe I just established that we're all broken and that I believe broken people are the only real people. All right? Nancy, because she was broken, was more human than human which is a song by White Zombie that Crystal had danced to earlier. Her and I just kept making eye contact and every time we did, it was more, and I, felt, I started to feel alive oh, like every time, like more, like more than I ever had. And now she's topless. Now she's topless dancing around and there they are, those titties I came to see. But now they were more than just tits, they were, they were breasts. There was something more. They nourish us as children. They please us as adults. This was somewhere in between. You understand? I was in territory I'd never been in before emotionally. And she would dance around because there were other people sitting there. But she would keep looking back at me over and over again. And every time I felt more and more alive, more blood pumping through my body. My heart was now pounding at five times the rate it ever had. I was a man, finally, for the first time, probably because of her, because of Nancy. And then she looked back again, and this time it was like a fucking beam of light. It was like I was looking into the eyes of someone I had known for centuries. And the last time we saw each other, our last words to one another were, find me in the next life. And here we were, finding each other in a goddamn strip club in Slidell, Louisiana. Who'd have thunk it? I knew right then and there that our journey could continue. We could finally be together again. How many lifetimes had we wasted searching for one another? Nancy and I were set to depart upon our voyage to prove that love was the only thing that could save the human species. We would show the world. And then I was in a headlock, a headlock, right then and there, right? And I look up and it's the bouncer, that fucking fool, right? He has me in a headlock and he's walking me out of the venue because he saw, he saw the connection. He knew the prophecy was true. He knew why I was there to free Nancy so that she could free others like her. I almost felt sorry for this fucking idiot. He had no clue who he had just put his hands on. And he gets me out into the parking lot and releases me, and that's a mistake. Releases me, a warrior, a gladiator in one. I whirl around angry, ready to destroy anyone that stood between Nancy and I, starting with that fucking mortal. And he very calmly goes, hey, hey boss, I can't have you in there crying, dude. It's like, oh. oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. Maybe I am too emotional. There you go. Thank you all very much. All right, fellas, show your love for Crystal. We made it! We made it!
Okay, here she comes, boys. Club favorite, it's Cacophony. Here comes your headliner for the night, Nancy. What do you say? Who? Mm -hmm. Actually, pretty good. Mm -hmm. All right, all right, Nancy. Yeah. Give up. Go, Nancy. Nancy's got it. Yeah. Nancy. 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 Can't have you in there crying, dude. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I've been a wrist listener for about three years. I've worked with horses my whole life, and I've spent a lot of that time cleaning stalls and listening to podcasts to pass the time. I've loved wrists since the first episode I listened to. Uh, it's made me laugh. It's made me cry. But I think most importantly, it's um, 
encouraged me to explore my own kink journey. So um, there was one story that stood out to me in particular uh, where a woman was in rope suspension and she was worrying about if her friends were going to save her some cheese. I think it was a party and they had like a charcuterie board. And at the time I thought, you know, that's so strange. How could she be doing something so unique and so intense and be thinking about cheese? Um, <laughs> but now I'm fortunate to say that, you know, rope is such a part of my life where there are scenes where maybe I'm not as invested and not as in deep of a rope space where I do find myself thinking about other really irrelevant things like are there snacks left over or what are my friends up to maybe sometimes I'm just not fully in that rope space because it's such a normal part of my life but yeah I just really have uh risks to thank for giving me the courage to explore the kink scene and um yeah, it's changed my life so <laughs> that's all risk is a really life-changing show for me it I don't know what I would do without it, listening to all these fantastic stories every week. And uh, yeah, it's really, I often think of this take a risk and uh, I'm really not a very risk taking person, I must admit. Yeah, when I was a kid, I didn't dare do anything. And that still stays with me a little bit, not daring to do many things. But I, I think of it all the time, this take a risk and it makes me want to take risks. Recently I was at this role-playing conference where I did role-playing for the first time in my life and uh, I think yeah, th this taking a risk really was in my head there too. So thank you very much and happy 600th episode from Lena here in Denmark. I was living in Boston at the time, and I remember, I was like, well, check it out. So I, I can't remember what the first episode I heard, but I remember I would walk from my apartment to my office in um, at Boston University, and I remember just being blown away by the stories, and just since then I've been hooked. I think one of the most stories that stuck out to me the most was um, Kevin's story, I believe it was called The Man from Hawaii. A man of Hawaii, I can't remember the title, I'm sorry Kevin, but I remember listening to it and I was driving to work well, I, and I literally ran a red light <laughs> while listening to it and it was just, luckily I, nothing happened, I was fine, but it was just, it was a story that I, just took me to a different place and it was so well done. And anytime I suggest a story to a friend, um, more often than not, they come back to me and they say, oh my god, that was an incredible podcast, and another listener is, joins the joins the cult. <laughs> what I love about Risk is that it's not only super entertaining, but I feel as though it's given me insight into other people's lives. Um, it's allowed me to empathize with people from different walks of life, and that's what I think the world needs right now. There's also some pretty weird shit in there, <laughs> but that's what keeps it fun. I have been listening to Risk for about five to six years now. I don't really rem remember how I found out about it. I eventually became quite addicted to it, especially because in those last years I've graduated from university and 
started living by myself and uh, had relationships and heartbreaks and and breakdowns and laughs and I did shows and I adopted cats I've I've had it all <laughs> and risk had a story for everything just every emotion I was feeling at the time every trauma every memory every laugh I could relive my whole experience of life for an episode of Risk which is pretty magical I'm just so grateful to see this strong beautiful community of people who just want to listen and be heard and laugh together cry together experience life and existence together Whisper is an app you can post things anonymously. These posts can range from political thoughts, opinions, secrets, but mostly people just trying to hook up. One night I'm scrolling and I see a post. Does anyone on here listen to the podcast Risk? I'd always loved podcasts, but mostly of the true crime kind. I needed something new. I obliged and asked, what's it about? I gave it a listen four years ago and now I'm happily married to the poster. Kevin, thank you so much for being part of the wonderful Risk family. What you've done, a place for inclusion, no one has done in this time. Thank you so much for that, and good luck to all your future prospects. When my daughter was very small, I would listen to it in my... I'd have headphones in while I was trying to rock her to sleep, and it was just kind of having another, like, a friend with me. I always loved the stories, and... They make me cry, they make me think. Sometimes they're very uncomfortable for me, but I always want to hear these stories. And that's why risk is so important. I never thought it'd be this I'm jumping out of your arms I land and fall in a pit Is this what they call the abyss? I fought and claw for an inch Turn in a miracle mile I could recall when your lips Used to contort in the smiles Bright as the sun that's drawn in the clips I haven't seen light in a while I could recall when your lips Used to contort in the smiles Bright as the sun that's drawn in the clips I haven't seen light in a while Hasn't been bright in a while This is Risk. This is FKJ and Boz behind me now. And we just heard a bunch of testimonials by you all. Let's see, who was in that batch? Emma Brothers told that little anecdote about that rope suspension bondage story. You know, as I've been listening back to these, I think what I'm going to do is do a Patreon check-in where I listen back to these and then go on at length, you know, respond, react, you know, have my own memories. The next person we heard was Lin Vid from Denmark. I always trip over the pronunciation of her name. Maureen O'Malley is someone we've heard on the show quite recently. 
Stefan Aggregato talked about how risk has helped build empathy. Ilaria Greco talked about that way that so many risk stories have, you know, kind of complemented or, or echoed things that she has found herself going through as well. Katie McDonald. It's so funny. In, in the last hosting segment, I was talking about how some people have met their marriage, their, their spouse through the risk fan community and forgot <laughs> there, there's one right here on the show. And Joe Mulligan. Oh, gosh. If he, Joe has told a couple of wonderful classic stories on the show. So great to hear his voice again. Oh, my gosh. Like I said, uh, yes, I want to do a Patreon check-in where I listen to these at length and really go off on my memories and associations with these that I have. We are so grateful to hear what the show means to people. People are always like, oh, you're probably so tired of hearing this. No, 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 no. We love it. And before all of that, we heard a little interstitial that was inspired by Sean Patton's story and created by Taj Easton and Jeff Barr. Folks, the next Risk Live shows are June 14th in Los Angeles at the Hotel Cafe, June 23rd at Caveat in New York City, July 30th in Detroit, Michigan, we'll be at the Magic Bag in Ferndale. July 31st, we'll be at Lincoln Hall in Chicago. We're still taking pitches for the Chicago and the Detroit shows. So look us up at risk-show.com slash submissions. And to find out more information about any of our live shows, go to risk-show.com slash tour now we still have more to hear from you but there's also two more stories on this week's episode in a little bit we're going to hear from laura Baring, but before that a story by tracy sagara oh my gosh tracy is one of our favorites and she is now a producer and story coach over at one of our favorite storytelling shows the story collider so here she is now with a story that she shared at a recent Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City. It's Tracy Segarra with a story we call Pandemic Breakdown. So it's late summer of 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. And I'm riding my bike, and I am in my mid-50s, and I am listening to my new favorite poet, Taylor Swift. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it dawns on me, I need to leave my husband. I do. I need to leave my husband. I'm listening to the song that she's singing, and she's singing... We always walked a very thin line. And then Bon Iver responds, you never gave a warning sign. And she responds, I gave so many signs. And I think of all the signs that I've seen in these last few months that makes it clear to me that this marriage is over and that I need to get out of it. 
I lose my job of 11 years right at the beginning of the pandemic. That's it. They fire me. It's over. And I was the big breadwinner. I was the one who had the health insurance. I was the one who made sure that we paid the mortgage. My husband's a personal trainer. And so now I'm devastated. I have no job. He has no job because he's a personal trainer. Gyms are closed. And I am freaking out, like, how are we going to pay the mortgage? We have to put our, our loan into, you know, forbearance for now because we can't afford it. And I don't know what's going to happen. And his first response is, uh, when do you think you're going to get a new job? <laughs> and I'm like, really, really? That's, you know, that's what you're thinking? And I'm like, why can't you get a new job? And he's like, I'm a business owner, you know, because he's a part owner in this personal training gym. And that just starts the beginning of it. But I am just so worried about what's going on. And I am so worried that I do get another job. I become a contact tracer. For those of you who may have gotten calls in the last two years from contact <laughs> tracers, anybody who's been in contact with somebody who, who had COVID, you get a call from a contact tracer, so you know how to stay in your house, not to be near other people, what to wipe down and all those things. And it was a very rewarding job, but it was still not enough to pay the bills. So I still think that we could lose our home because I'm not making enough money. And I'm just getting more and more annoyed at Fred because my husband is mostly sitting downstairs watching TV from sunrise to sunset, 9 a.m., it's storage wars, 10 a.m., porn stars, not porn stars, porn stars. <laughs> you know, 3 p.m., I come back from work, 5 p.m., and he's still watching TV. Now it's like search for Bigfoot or something. And the only activity I can see that he's doing is that he's growing his beard. And he has gotten like 50 different products for his beard that he is taking so much care of. But I don't feel like he's taking care of me. I don't feel like he's taking care of the household. And my love language is service. And he's doing none of that. And I feel like I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, just trying to make sure that we stay afloat. And I can barely remember what it was like when we first met each other. When we first started dating, we're both in recovery, and he would come to a meeting every Friday night, and he would bring me flowers. And that was wonderful. And we used to wander the streets of New York City, and he would always be so excited when we walked down a street that he had never been down before. I would look at him, and it was like seeing a kid in a candy shop, and I loved that about him. And then when our twins were born in 2000, from 2000 to 2005, neither of us needed any other entertainment than watching our newborn twins turn into adorable toddlers. But all that is just gone. And so I feel like the walls are closing in on me. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. This pandemic is freaking me the fuck out. And I know everybody's in a pandemic. But I've lost my job. I've lost my security. I don't know what I'm going to do next. And he's just sitting on the couch. So I ride my bike. That's the only way I can get out of the house and feel like I'm getting any kind of peace as I ride my bike. So I ride my bike everywhere, sometimes for hours. 
So here it is this day, I'm listening to Taylor Swift and I'm realizing that I need to leave my husband and I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking the logistics of it. You know, I have to look up for a divorce lawyer or maybe a mediator because that would be cheaper because I have no money. And then I think about my kids and my twins are now almost 20. And I'm like, oh, you know, it'll be so hard on them if we divorce. But then I remember that I was 25 and newly sober when my parents split up and my father left my mother for the B-movie actress who he met while walking the dog. And it was hard for me, but I survived and I figure they'll survive too. And so I go back home that day and I don't even want to look at Fred and I'm just thinking about the next steps that I need to take to get out of this marriage because it is just clear to me that I need to get out. And I just happened to take a walk with a friend of mine few days later, and she's a new friend, so she doesn't know Fred, and I'm usually a pretty private person, except on stage where I tell you everything about my life. <laughs> and um, I start telling her what's going on in my marriage, and I tell her, you know, I, I really think I need to leave. And she says, Tracy, have you ever thought about therapy? And I'm like, therapy? I am, you know, in my mid-50s, I've been through so much therapy. I said, Fred and I went to therapy, couples therapy, before we were even engaged. If that isn't a red flag, I don't know what is. I don't think therapy's going to do anything for me. Well, she goes, you know, we are in a middle pandemic, and, you know, I have this great therapist. We have calls over Zoom, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sick of doing Zoom everything. But she gives me her number, and I decide to call. So I have my first appointment with this therapist. Everybody here has probably been to therapy. Most of you were in New York. You've all been to therapy. <laughs> and so the first appointment is all about, tell me about your mother. Tell me about your father. What was it like being the fourth of five children? And, you know, all those things. And I am just not in the mood to retell all the things that I've told so many times before. So we go through it, and at the end of the session, I feel like I have wasted $135 of my money and her time. And at the end of the call, she says, well, would you like to set up another session? And I think, no, not really, but I really don't know what else to do. So I say, okay, let me give it at least one more shot. But first, I need to get out of town. I just needed... I really felt like the walls were closing in on me. The only being that I could stand to be near was my dog, and that wasn't enough. And so I call my friend Pearl, who at the time was in Connecticut, her kids were at school, and she was by herself, and she says, come, come to Connecticut, spend a week with me, and I have my laptop, and I can do my contact tracing from there. She's working from home, obviously, we're all working from home. And so I go to Connecticut, and she says, we don't even have to talk about it. And I go there, and I'm making my contact tracing calls from her daughter's bedroom. And she's working in the other room, and we have meals together. I feel like a little bit of peace, but still nothing. You know, I'm hoping that this week here is going to give me some kind of clarity about what I need to do next. So I'm in recovery. So I like to go to morning meetings, and now there's Zoom meetings. I don't want to go to the Zoom meetings that I used to go to at home because my husband is in recovery and he'll be at those meetings and I don't want to have anything to do with him right now. So I find a local Zoom meeting that's in Hartford, Connecticut, so I can get in touch with those people. And so I start going to that meeting 
And then one morning, before I go to the meeting, I am just like torn up inside. I'm so confused. I've just watched Magic Mike the night before. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. And I get down on my knees, and I don't usually do this, and I pray. And I say to whatever higher power is out there that helped me get sober, I say, can you please just help me? Because I don't know what to do. You know, like, I don't want to make a big mess of my life or make a bigger mess of my life, but I just feel like I don't have the answer, and the answer seems to be to leave. And I don't get any response, <laughs> you know? And then it's the end of the week, and Pearl drives me to the train station. And I don't want to leave. You know, I don't want to go. I'm like, can I just stay here and live with you, Pearl? But I go back home. And when I get in the door, I instantly know that nothing's changed. You know, I, there's been no big revelation. I get in the house. I see Fred, and he goes to give me a hug. And I say, you know what? I can't exactly tell you what's going on, Fred, because he knows something's afoot. But for now, I just really don't want you to touch me. And he's like, whoa, okay, you know. But he gives me my space. And in bed at night, you know, we're on separate sides of the bed. And the only thing we're hugging is we're each hugging the dog. And that's it. And things go on like that. And then I have my second session with the therapist. And when I get on the call... All of a sudden, I feel something inside of me, and it seems like all of the emotions that have been dammed up, all the confusion just comes tumbling out, and I'm talking to her as if I've known her all my life, and I just say, I can't take this anymore. I can't stand him. I don't want him to touch me. I don't want to be near him. I don't even want to talk to him. I just want out. And she says, Tracy, let me ask you a question. Are you still getting the same joy out of the things you got joy out of before this pandemic started, before you started feeling this way about Fred? And I thought about it, and I said, not really. Like, I can't read books. I used to love to read. I love storytelling, and I had my own storytelling show, and I just wasn't doing it anymore. And telling stories, I realized I didn't think I had any more stories to tell. I just fell flat. And she says, Tracy, she goes, you sound like you're depressed, like clinically depressed. Have you ever thought of medication? And I'm like, whoa, like, no, no, I have not thought of medication, you know. And in that moment, I realized that I am a medication snob, like against medication, because my feeling is that I should be able to live my life and deal with things. Meanwhile, almost everybody in my family, including my husband, my sisters, you know, everybody that I know and love is on medication. But especially I have two sisters who have some very severe mental illness and I don't want to be like them. And I feel like taking medication is a step backwards or it's, it shows that I've failed. You know? And I know, I know in my head that's a stupid way to think and it's helped them immensely. And she says, I really think you should look into it and you should consider it. And I think, you know what? 
at this point, I have no idea what to do, so I'll try it. And so I get on Lexapro. And <laughs> yay for Lexapro. <laughs> and I ask her and I ask the doctor, I'm like, well, how long is it going to take before, you know, this works or I'm going to know that it works because I've never taken any medication before, you know, except cocaine and, you know, pot and all those other things I took years ago. And they said, well, it takes four weeks. Just give it some time and we'll see. So about four and a half weeks later, I'm walking upstairs from the basement and the hamster wheel of worries is starting to really get going. You know, how are we going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to, you know, ever retire? How are my kids going to be okay? You know, all those things are going through my head. And then all of a sudden, like a cluster headache, it just dissolves. And I feel clear and I feel calm and I feel at peace. And I'm like, whoa. And that's my phone telling me I need to take my Lexapro. <laughs> I just realized that because I forgot to take it before I came. <laughs> oh my God, that's too funny. All right. <laughs> And this is amazing. This medication is a revelation. And it feels like I have been strangled for all this time. And finally, the hands are gone from my throat. And I can breathe. And things start getting better. And I don't trust it at first. I'm like, yeah, this is like a one-off. I can't expect this to really happen. Like, you know, nothing has changed in my life. But each day, I start feeling better and better. And eventually, I start softening in my stance about my husband. And I think, you know, he's going through a pandemic too, you know? And I think about the times in our relationship. And our relationship has been a tough relationship. We at that time had been married almost 23 years. And there had been times through that relationship where, you know, both of us wanted to either divorce or kill each other. And it got serious. You know, cops were called to the house once it was bad. You know, but we always found our way back to each other and became a team again. And I remember thinking, though, this time, you know, Taylor Swift was telling me that, you know... <laughs> We're in a pandemic now, and now everything's coming crystal clear, and really what I need to understand is that I married the wrong guy. But now that this drug, this medication is working on me, I'm realizing that it wasn't that my marriage was broken. It was me that was broken, and I needed to fix me. And, you know, when we would have these fights and stuff all throughout our relationship, you know, there were times where I thought we were never going to come back from it. And then one day I'd just be singing one of these silly songs that we made up together, like this one. A starry, starry box, a cup of coffee cost four bucks, and their bagels really suck. <laughs> and he would laugh. And when he left, we became that team again. 
And I was thinking about all these things. And then one night, I get into bed, and I just take a chance, and I roll over, and I hug him, and it feels right. It feels right again, as I feel the warmth of his body against mine. And then our dog Murphy jumps up (laughs) and gets between us and starts licking us, and that feels even more right. Thank you. So I found Risk seven years ago when I was 18 years old. Um, I'm an only child, so like for the first few years that I was listening to the show, it kind of felt like an older sibling to me, like the the vignettes of people's lives that played out every episode, uh, like really helped to give me a sense of like empathy and compassion. Like I truly never know what's going on in someone's life or what they've been through, both the good parts and the bad. And that was like so valuable at an age when I was really impressionable. The show like broadened my horizons and just kind of like I was from Bible Belt South and it exposed me to like things like buzzwords I had always heard. But it really gave me a, a more intimate knowledge of all these these things like healthy kink and navigating trauma, relationships, uh, sexuality, all that stuff. The show has been like so dear to me uh, that for a lot of my early 20s, especially, I viewed different parts of my life as risk stories. It kind of became part of like my coping. When I was going through hardship, I could imagine how like Kevin would lead me in and then a wiser version of me in the future could tell the stories of the issues I was going through at the time to people through the show. Looking at things this way, like it, it helped me to get through a bunch of low points and gave me hope that I could turn the difficult events in my life into something worth sharing. The moment that really defined how much risk means to me happened a few years ago. Someone close to me was assaulted and I was the one of the first people they came to uh, like an hour or so after it happened. And uh, the only reason, truly, like the only reason I had any idea of what to do was because of this risk episode I had heard a few weeks prior. Uh, The speaker was this woman who at the time was in college and her friend was sexually assaulted. And uh, like the wisdom that that woman shared, especially at the end of the episode, after going through the experience I was able to use in that night, and gave me some sense of like agency and control and, and something that was really heavy to handle at like 22 years old. Um, now, risk kind of becomes this like green flag for me, for people. Like I know I am getting close to someone or I know I trust someone when I start getting the idea that I want to share a risk episode with them. Uh, And I always like look forward to like especially car trips with like new people or even just old friends of like just sharing a risk episode with them or like finding a new one together. And I have like all these really good connecting memories with different friends from risk episodes that like we weave into our friendship. 
It's gotten to the point that risk is, is really worked into the bedrock of like how I view the world and connect with people. My name is Florencia. I am originally from Argentina. For a decade, I lived in America teaching in Virginia schools. One day I changed gears and decided to come back to Argentina and decided to start teaching adults, teaching English to adults. I had never done that before, and so I proceeded to ask around and what is the best material, what's the best book. And I also I proceeded to download said material. I really admire your storytellers. They stand in front of a microphone, they open their hearts, their lives, their demons, and they don't know who's going to listen. People might judge them. People might disagree with them or not understand their circumstances or where they're coming from. And that precisely is the part that I treasure. Each episode leads to a discussion, a conversation, and you would be amazed at the stories that I hear from my own students. They open their hearts to me and we all together, we really enjoy each and one of them. And that is the reason why I wanted to shout out to them not only to my students for giving me that energy and that love and sometimes homework <laughs> when they can, but also to you and your storytellers for being part of our lives unknowingly. So from down here, we'll be listening to you all and I hope you all continue doing this for years to come. Kisses, kisses and hugs from Argentina. So my partner is queer, and they have traditionally presented with more of a cisgender heteronormative expression. When we first started having conversations around their gender expression, I found myself reacting from a place of discomfort. And this was really surprising to me because at that point in my life, I already considered myself a really progressive person. I'd also been a risk listener for years. Over the ensuing months, as we continued to have conversations, I listened to Risk, and I can't pinpoint a particular story that did it for me. But the collective vulnerability expressed by the storytellers on this show, revolving around their own experiences with gender identity and expression, and the hostile reactions that are so prevalent in our society, I think all of that collectively influenced me and reminded me that any sort of discomfort that I might feel about someone else's choices, about how they express themselves, is just an artifact of that crazy societal programming that we've all been brainwashed with and that I don't believe in that shit. Risk has made me a more empathetic person. And that's always the selling point that I lead with when I'm telling somebody about this great show that they may not have heard of. Kevin has done something pure and good in the world. And I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for this podcast. It means so much to me to have this space where people can openly express these difficult life experiences in a way that isn't passed through any sort of corporate filter that isn't presented with some angle or means to an end in mind. 
it's just a place where people are vulnerable and open that fosters connection. I think that's the most important thing in this life. I'm so happy that risk is in my life. One of my favorite stories was The First Times by DK Anderson from the episode Out of the Blue. I was initially nervous about listening to a story on that subject matter, um, you know, about water sports and scat. Um, I didn't think it would appeal to me, but I was just utterly drawn in by the beautiful way that DK Anderson described his love and his trust for his partner and the intimacy that unfolded between them. Um, and it really changed the way that I viewed sex and different ways of sexual expression and intimacy. It just really opened my eyes to something I hadn't really understood before, and I was really touched by it. So thank you for running that story and for running all the stories. Um, yeah, that's it. My name is Eleanor. I live in Richmond, Virginia. Presently, risk means so much to me. I have been listening since I was 15, 16, since it began, because now I'm 27. I remember being told about it by my family friend, Larry, and he knows what's what in the podcast world. And I just have stuck with it. It's taught me so much about my sexuality and about going through hard times and it's just such a mainstay in my life. It also just teaches me, of course, empathy. Everything that you think it could possibly do, it's doing and more. So thank you so much for continuing to make this podcast and one day I'll share a story. That's... <laughs> I have a bunch in my head, but, um, yeah, one day. It's 2017. And I fly home to Texas to be with my sweet, lovely, five-year-old nephew named Joey, who lives with my mom and my stepdad. I also go home to help my mom because we are preparing for family court. Now, to give you a little bit of background, my younger sister, Joey's mom, she suffers from bipolar disorder, among other things. And to cope with her mental illness, she does drugs. Her life is absolutely the most painful existence I could imagine for anyone. She started with pain meds, the kind that you can get from the emergency room, and now she does harder things like heroin and crystal meth. The year prior, we had gone to family court for the first time. It was very spur of the moment because my sister had shown up demanding that she take Joey. But we wanted the judge to let us keep Joey. I mean, he was only four years old at the time, and he had lived every single day of his life in that same house with his grandmother. My sister represented herself at that hearing, and she only had to prove that she was stable in that moment. Her past history of drug abuse wasn't admissible, and she did, and we lost. And I watched my little sister awkwardly put Joey into a car seat that she had clearly never used before and drive off declaring that we would never see him again. Now that declaration lasted a few months, 
months where we spent every day wondering if Joey was safe, wondering if Joey was scared, wondering if Joey was alone while his sister was out getting high with some guy. And then randomly, my sister showed back up. She wanted my mom to babysit Joey for the weekend. Now Joey was the same sweet, funny, deeply inquisitive little boy that he had always been, but there were a few changes in him. He was scared of showers, and he would get really, like, agitated and maybe freeze up if he made a loud noise or if he accidentally knocked something over. And that weekend of babysitting turned into a week, which turned into another week and another week. And so for an entire year, we just waited for the other shoe to drop. We waited for my sister to call angry and high on meds and demand that she take him back. We locked the back gate every night, hoping that we wouldn't hear a strange car drive up the drive. But living like that isn't sustainable, so we eventually decided to put everything on the line and uh, go to court. I show up to Texas, and the guest room at my family's house looks like a tornado has hit. I mean, there's papers everywhere. There's log books and files and, 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 and lists of my sister's drug abuse and job situations and alleged boyfriends and trips to the ER. I mean, all of this spanning years. I mean, the entirety of Joey's young life. And my mom is so frantic, and she's just trying to get everything organized. And in the middle of this, Joey wanders in, and he knows that we're anxious, but he's, you know, he's too little to know why, and we're obviously not going to tell him. And He just wants to watch Harry Potter with me. But I can't watch Harry Potter with him because my job that night is to take all of the recordings of phone conversations between my mom and my sister and put them onto a thumb drive so that our lawyer can play the thumb drive in court if need be. Now, I hadn't seen my sister in a few years, but I heard her voice loud and angry in this manic episode yelling at my mom and this, this guy with this thick country accent threatening to jack my mom's jaw. And it was... Unbelievable. So the next day we get up, and my mom and I meet with her lawyer, Jim, in his office, and we have all of our binders of info, and he rifles through everything, and he quizzes my mom, asking her questions that, that he will on the stand, trying to prep her, and he, he encourages her to really keep it simple, to keep the answers short, because we have, after all, only 20 minutes to prove our case. And then my sister will have 20 minutes to prove her case, 40 whole minutes, and my nephew's fate will be decided. But my mom couldn't keep it simple. Every simple answer unraveled into this web of backstory and explanation and detail, and I could not imagine the stress that my mom was under, and yet I knew she had to keep it together because everything was riding on her testimony. The next morning, we got up for court, and we put on our nice clothes. I was driving us there, and I wanted us to get there early, and I had water bottles and bananas, and I, and I packed them away in the car in case we got hungry, and, and we put on our nice clothes, and, and we, we kissed Joey, and he, you know, he was wearing little Spider-Man pajamas, and my stepdad was staying with him while we went to court, and we drove to the courthouse. We went through security, up the elevators to the third floor, and we met with Jim. I showed Jim how to use the thumb drive, and I got pretty scared because it kind of seemed like new technology for him. Like, he wasn't sure how to, how to insert the thumb drive into the computer, and I was like, you can't screw this up. My sister walked in, alone. She was wearing boots and jeans with um, bedazzled pockets and this, like, kind of tight-fitting top, and I could tell that she'd really tried to look her best, and that really made me sad. We were the first case of the day, and uh, the judge asked if we were ready to proceed, and we said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed, and she stood up and told the judge that she was uh, not given adequate time to find representation, and she would prefer a postponement. 
Well, I mean, this was a lie. We had given her plenty of time. We'd given her more time than necessary. But the judge nodded and gave her a two-week postponement, just like that. We walked out of the courtroom minutes after walking in. I went back to California. My mom worked on the case and tried to get it organized more clearly. Two weeks later, I flew to Texas for the second time. We met with Jim again in his office. My mom was still having a lot of trouble keeping everything organized and, and trying to keep things simple and, and clear, but at least she wasn't as frantic this time. And then we got up in the morning of court and we, we put our nice clothes on and I had the, the water bottles and the bananas ready and, and we kissed my nephew goodbye as he was eating his cereal at the table and we drove to the courthouse. We went through security up the elevators to the third floor and we met with Jim. And my sister walked in alone. She had her hair pulled up into this messy knot and her clothes were really baggy and the judge asked us if we were ready to proceed and we said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed and she said yes. She said she was ready to proceed and she had this big binder full of paperwork with her. But then she said that she'd spent the entire night in the emergency room and she was in a lot of pain and she would prefer another postponement. The judge nodded and gave her another two weeks, just like that. We walked out of the courtroom minutes after walking in, and I was mad because I thought my sister was working the system to her advantage and taking us all for a ride, but I mean, what were we going to do? So I went back to California. My mom and I talked on the phone and, and went over her cross-examination, and then two weeks later, I flew to L.A. for a third time. We didn't meet with Jim in his office, and we went to bed early. And we got up the next morning, and we put on our nice clothes, and we kissed my nephew goodbye, and we drove the very familiar route to the courthouse. We went through security, up the elevators to the third floor, and we met with Jim. The judge asked us if we were ready to proceed. We said yes. The judge asked my sister if she was ready to proceed, and she said yes. And then I watched my mom take the stand. Jim asked her questions about my sister's drug use and past living situations and job situations, and I watched my mother really struggle to be clear but also loving because that was her kid that she was talking about after all. Jim fired off questions and my mom answered them and she kept it simple. She kept it simple and I just sat there in my seat and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, dear God, please take care of my nephew, please take care of my nephew, please take care of my nephew. And then my sister took the stand. Jim asked her questions about her, her drug use and her, her living situations and caught her in some lies. And then he played the thumb drive. And my sister's angry voice, high on drugs, filled the courtroom. And she sounded so bad. I was glad. I was glad it was coming out in court. It was the version of her that we knew so well and the version of her that we saw so often. And yet... I wanted to run across the courtroom and wrap her up into a hug and tell her that we loved her. That we were not doing this to hurt her. We were doing this because we had to. And then our 20 minutes were up and my sister began her defense. She gave an impassioned plea to the judge. I mean, she talked about how much she loved her son and how hard things had been for her, but how she was really, really trying to to get things in order. I looked at the judge, but I, I couldn't tell if he believed her. I mean, she sounded really convincing. And then I watched my sister cross-examine my mom on the stand. She sounded like a lawyer. It was like half professional sounding and also like half painfully intimate. 
She asked my mom these like open-ended questions and she rarely cut her off and all of the detail and all of the, the backstory that my mom had worked so hard to keep from unraveling finally had a place to come out. And I watched my mom paint this very clear picture of, of what life was like with my sister and how, how hard we had tried to make things different but how scared we were for my nephew if she were to take him again. And then my sister's 20 minutes were up. I looked at the judge, and he had his head bent down, and he was, like, scribbling notes. And I looked at Jim, our lawyer, but he looked, looked kind of calm and slightly disinterested. And then the judge, he, he lifted his head up, and he started reading from his notepad, and it was a lot of legal jargon. It was really hard for me to follow, but I heard things like custody and supervised visitation and guardian, but, like, which way was it going? Like, nobody's reacting. Why isn't it clear? Did we win? And then he dismissed us. My sister walked out. She didn't look at us. And I looked at my mom. We had won. We walked out of the courtroom in like a daze, you know? Like for the first time in five years, we didn't have to be scared that she would show up in a, in a fit of rage and demand him back. We didn't have to worry that we would take him to preschool in the morning and, and pick him up in the afternoon, but he'd be gone. We didn't have to be scared. My mom and I wandered into this Mexican food restaurant that was across the street, and we were just, we just ordered like Diet Cokes and we read through the, the filing, and what it said was that instead of being the custodial guardian, which is what we had asked for, um, my mom was actually considered the third parent, which might not seem like a big deal, but it's actually a huge distinction. What it means is that my mom has equal rights to my nephew and gets to decide where he lives. It also said that the biological parents only get supervised visitation, which is a tragic thing to be excited about, but we were so relieved. And I thought back to, you know, all of the court dates prior, and I, I wondered if things would have turned out differently if my sister hadn't created so many postponements, if my mom hadn't had that time to get grounded, and if she'd still been so frantic and so anxious, and I wondered if all of that frustration and all of that time had really been a really big miracle in disguise. I have a little bit of an epilogue to the story. All of that happened in 2017, and in 2019, enough time had passed that it was appropriate and reasonable for us to go to court and start the process to see if we could adopt Joey. So, you know, we went through the paperwork and started it, but then the courts in Texas shut down for the pandemic. But last summer, the courts in Texas opened back up. So I flew to Texas. And the day of court, we got up and we put on our nice clothes and Joey wore these khaki pants and this little blue and white button-up shirt. And we drove the very familiar route to the courthouse. We went through security up the elevators to the third floor. And we went in, and the you know, lawyer and judge did all their legal talk. And then right at the very end, the judge looked down at my nephew, and he said, young man, do you know what's happening today? Do you, do you want to be adopted? And with this big smile on his face, Joey said, yes, sir. <laughs> and then he said, I have never actually met a real judge before. And we took pictures with the judge, and I tried not to cry pretty unsuccessfully. And then as we were walking out of the courtroom, Joey opened his arms really wide, and he said, family hug. <laughs> and we wrapped our arms around him right there in the courtroom, and we hugged him in the same place that we had lost him and fought for him for so many years. And then we went home, and by God, we watched Harry Potter. <laughs> Thank you.
if I said that risk really changed my life. It's gotten me through some major losses and some major wins. I have experienced every emotion you could imagine listening to the stories. I've laughed, I've cried, I've been shocked, I've been heartbroken. I have loved so, so many episodes. It would be hard to pick just one. I've shared the podcast with about everyone I know. Each of them have shared how meaningful the stories they heard were to them. I hope that you never stop sharing these stories. And I hope that one day I get brave enough to take a risk and share my own story. So you want to know how risk has affected me? It's just enhanced my life in, in ways that you can't imagine. Every time I meet somebody new, the first thing I say to them, and it's probably very annoying, but I, I say, what's your story? And some people are put off by it. Some people don't like that. And I kind of hold it against them in a way because what's wrong with that question, really? But um, I, anyway, if somebody you know takes me up on it and, start, and answers the question, uh, I'm always fascinated. And I collect people's stories. And I have like a top 10 list, probably top 100 list of stories people that have told me, like, because people have great stories, as you know. And so anyway, now I've started collecting them from your podcast. And um, it's like I've met these new friends, you know, it's like you guys are are, are friends that have told me these stories. And, and I and I and I it's almost like I feel like I know you and. My two favorite storytellers are you and Elda Baker. And I'll start with Elna. She, her story about For the Love of Nubbins is probably my favorite, my very, very favorite all time. I play it for everybody I meet to judge how hard they laugh when they hear it. Because if they don't laugh hard enough, I think you are humorless. <laughs> you have no sense of humor. It's just, I laugh until I cry every time I listen to it. It's such a great story. And uh, I also love her story about her, 
Dog Days. I love the story of Daisy. I cry every time I hear that one. That's She's just great. She's so great. Like, I want to be her best girlfriend. I really love her. And But also, you. If you had a podcast and just you told stories every time, I would be your biggest fan. I mean, you don't need other guests because your stories are so great. I just love how you talk about your family and, and, and your school, too. And m- my favorite story of yours is definitely about Mr. Mayor taking one for the team. That just makes me cry. I laugh so hard, too. I just I love how you talk about, you know, your experiences at Catholic school and everything because, you know, they're not exactly gay-friendly, but I like how you took good memories from things and good experiences, and I, I don't know. that I, I like that. And... I love, oh, I love your, your family Christmas tree story. That's just, that's a family favorite. That's a holiday classic for me now. I I listen, I play that for people around Christmas time and I listen to it every Christmas because I, it's just, it's like watching the Charlie Brown Christmas classic. It's, it's a Christmas classic story for me. I've always loved stories and you bring me the best ones. So thanks, Kevin. Thank you for everything. Hi, Kevin. It's Rob Putnam in Los Angeles. Congratulations on your 600th show. I'm very pleased the risk is still on. I'm sure that countless others are as well. I know that for me, it serves as a source of, um, you know, solace. And it reminds me in a very deep and real way that other people have things they've done in the past of which they're ashamed or which they, you know, feel bad about. We all do. We all have. And it's very easy, especially over the last few years, it's been very easy to feel that, you know, I'm the only person that's done these things and everybody else has done things perfectly. Isolation can do that to you. You know, I think, I I doubt there, nobody's gotten out of this thing easily, but hearing other people's stories reminds me that we're all very fallible and that we all have these feelings from time to time. And it's just reassuring to know that I'm not alone in this and I know that most people are not alone, uh, you know, do these things. Anyway, um, so hopefully uh, we continue to hear great stories. I'm sure we will. The show has only gotten better. Uh, I wonder if, often wonder if the challenges you've had to face have made it even a better show. It's always been stellar. Um, I, look in, I look forward to hearing more. And thanks again. Thanks again. Truly. Hey, Kevin, this is Geika coming at you from San Antonio, Texas. I found out about the show ah, maybe by accident. I think it was recommended because I like shows like The Moth and I love storytelling and I'm not quite brave enough to do it myself. I don't I can never think of a really good story until I'm a little tipsy and hanging out with friends. So maybe I just need to record those situations. But I love the show because there's so many stories that I hear that I didn't think I had anything in common with the storyteller and come to find that like every word out of their mouth I can relate to. So I think it's a great way to bring everybody together because, you know, hey, we're all human and no matter what our situations are, we definitely have something in common. So keep up the good work and maybe one day you'll hear my voice on your pitch line. Some of the podcasts that you guys have, I... I literally have laughed so hard that I've peed myself. Thank God I work from home and was able to press pause and go get changed. Or I've cried. Like, 
the emotions that are put out they're so real and it just makes your podcast amazing and I actually look forward to working because I get to sit down and listen to the stories congratulations on 600 here's to 600 more That is all for this, the 600th episode of Risk. Folks, we've heard a lot of stuff today. We heard a bunch of testimonials from you all, including Rebecca Schwartz. She was wishing us 600 more episodes. Jen Passel, she said she started collecting stories also, and she had sweet things to say about Stories by Alma Baker and myself. Rob Putnam was so beautiful, sharing about people having regrets, things they've been ashamed of, but then still share about. And Skeka, I love that name, uh, she talked about how stories bring people together, help people see what they have in common. And Nicole Bayer talked about having emotional outbursts while listening to the show in public, and I certainly do too. And before that, we heard a story by Laura Baring that she shared at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. And before that, a final batch of testimonials, this time including Brody Taylor. Uh, He was talking about the effect of risk on his friendships, which is beautiful. Florentina, she shared about sharing risk with her students. (laughs) We always love to hear that. Therapists who share stories with their clients or or teachers who share stories with their students. Lindsay Vesey, she shared about becoming more understanding of her partner from listening to the show. Jess talked about that D.K. Anderson story. Remember, there was a a scat play scene at the end of it, and I've always been amazed at how many people still bring that story up as having helped them uh, become more open-minded about different forms of sexual expression and intimacy. Eleanor Milkowski-Dahlgren, she was so sweet, she promised she might tell a story here on the show soon, too. Well, folks, we are so, 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 so grateful to all of you for all of your support in so many ways. Don't forget, you can go over to patreon.com slash risk. That is where you can help keep the show running, help us (laughs) keep running in order to create another 600 episodes. Plus, there's a ton of bonus content over there, including I'll do a little check-in about how I'm feeling on, you know, 600 episodes in. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Hey, Risk, this is Sam from California. I love your guys' show so much. Another 600,000 episodes. Bring them on. Uh, to commemorate your 600th episode, here is my favorite episode of Risk, sped up to 600 times speed. And here's a portion of that episode slowed down to 1 600th of its original speed. All right, thanks, guys. Keep it up. Scuttlebutt. 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 So that'd be the scuttlebutt. 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 So that'd be the scuttlebutt. 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 So that'd be the scuttlebutt. 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 So that we the scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt, 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 scuttlebutt.